This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Hello, Hearts of Oak, and welcome to another interview coming up in a moment with Dr. Steve Turley. You'll have seen his Turley Talks. And I've loved watching these over the last few years, bringing an optimistic and hopeful message, uh, looking at world events, looking at the political side, and, and often quite at odds with a, a more dour, conservative message, which we sometimes see in the media. But we look at, are we seeing the revitalization of Christian civilization? A new conservative age is rising. And we look at the political winds, the political conservative winds blowing across Europe and how they're changing also in the US. Why is that? We look at a a search for spiritual meaning in the midst of the moral vacuum, decay, collapse of society when there is no right and wrong. People are searching for meaning and often people are looking to faith and to Christianity for that. And then we finish off in parallel economies. Uh, this is a pushback on the woke corporation, the woke agenda, the progressive uh, wave that is coming through commerce. And we are seeing a new set of companies that don't want to force that upon our throats and want to cater for a more traditional conservative market. Dr. Steve Turley, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your time. It's my honor, Peter. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. Oh, thank you. And uh, you can find at Dr. Turley Talks on Twitter, uh, at Steve Turley TV, obviously on YouTube. Uh, all the links are in the description, but turleytalks.com uh, and the many podcasts, uh, Turley Talks, but all the links are there in the description. And um, Dr. Steve Turley is internationally recognized best-selling author. I didn't actually realize one of the books uh, touching on C.S. Lewis. Anyone who writes anything on C.S. Lewis is uh, wonderful to have on. So um, from from my home town back in Belfast. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah, that's right. But you're a scholar, speaker, obviously, Turley Talks. I think you've been, you've been putting stuff up since, um, what, 2016, 2017, something like that? It, that, that's right. Yeah, just um, we started on November 1st, uh, 2016, just uh, at seven days leading up to November 8th, which was uh, what I like to call Brexit Part Two, which was the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, and so I started there. I made a, one video per, per day analyzing the current political situation. I made the argument, the extended argument that Trump was going to win against all odds, as it were. And of course, I spent the next few weeks gloating and we just kept going. Okay, give us a little bit of your your background. Probably 80%, well, 75% of our viewers are UK, 15% US, and then the rest all over. So, uh, Dr. C, could you just take a moment and introduce yourself to our UK audience who may not be as familiar with you as others? Yeah, well, I have, uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Steve Turley. Um, I've, uh, I'm a, technically, I'm an internationally recognized scholar, speaker, and author. That's part of the uh, elevator pitch. Um, but I've, uh, I've spent uh, most of my life either in the world of music. Uh, my first degree was in classical guitar uh, or in theology. My uh, other degrees are um, in uh, theological uh, studies, um, the last one being a PhD from Durham University in the UK, which we were just talking about. Um, and as a result, uh, 
I was in academia for a number of years, both at the university level as well as uh, classical schools. Classical schools are going through a bit of a renaissance uh, here in the States um, and as well as in, uh, in Europe, where we're going back to the great books tradition, Latin, Greek, uh, the importance of theology as the queen of the sciences and so on. So I spent about 20 years, 18 years uh, in that world. Um, and uh, and then a friend of mine suggested I start doing some YouTube videos uh, to analyze the uh, political um, and, and cultural scene going on uh, back in 2016. It was obviously very exciting. Brexit had just passed and in June, uh, which I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think it stood a chance and I was of course hoping for it. But when, when I saw it actually happening, that's when I realized a lot of the scholarship that I had encountered at Durham university, which we can develop a bit, uh, called post-secular studies. That's when I started to see some of the ramifications of those studies actually in real time. So my friend suggested I do something uh, akin to that kind of analysis for people with the upcoming Trump uh, Clinton uh, election, which I did. And uh, and the channel turned out to be a hit, as it were, over time. And um, and so I ended up leaving academia and going into uh, broadcasting full time. And I've since written 20 books on various uh, subjects. And we uh, now have over a million subscribers uh, to the YouTube channel. And really, in the end, um, my daily uh, analysis is one of looking at current events in light of uh, what I would call very real conservative uh, trends. Uh, and so my analysis tends to be very optimistic uh, for the conservative, which is which is very which, which goes cuts against the grain, and rightly so. Full, fully noted. We've lived for the last three hundred years in what's called the modern world, and the modern world's inherently leftist, liberal, anti-traditionalist. It, you know, it it, it it keeps science and religion uh, worlds apart. They have nothing to do with each other, and and on and on and on. So rightly so, we've been uh, rightly frustrated, but that modern age is coming to an end and a new world is is rising. And so what I try to do is provide hope for uh, courageous patriots uh, with daily optimistic broadcasting of news and events. Um, Kissed all your tagline on your YouTube, it's the secular world is at its brink and a new conservative age is rising. Um Tell us about, because bad news sells better than, than good news, which you mentioned in the conservative circles. Um, tell us why you use that, I guess, that tagline, that message. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I have you guys over on the other side of the pond to, uh, to blame for that, I would say, a little bit of it. When I was doing my uh, doctoral studies at Durham University, um, it was while I was there that I came across a field of study uh, that's broadly known as post-secular studies. And it's a huge field of study. I mean, it deals with, you know, philosophy and law and fashion and media and politics, you you name it. Uh, and it involves all kinds of scholars like uh, Jürgen Habermas, a sociologist. He's, he's really the one who kind of coined the phrase decades ago. Peter Berger is another one, Charles Taylor, Talal Assad. They're all united in their assessment that what's known as the secularization thesis is for all practical purposes dead in the social sciences. So 
secularization thesis is this notion. It was very popular in the early 20th century. It's this notion that the more educated and technological society becomes, the less religious it will be. So sociologists like Max Weber, Emil Durkheim, they all saw secularity and progressivism and so forth. It's just basically baked into the cake of this you know, progressive evolutionary movement of history. And what these post-secular scholars were arguing is that thesis for all practical purposes is, is dead. Uh, and they made the argument that ve very few contemporary sociologists will take the secularization thesis seriously uh, today. And that's because, as it turns out, religion uh, is more prevalent in our world today. Uh, it, uh, it's actually, well, I should say it's just as prevalent in our world today as it's always been. And in fact, as Rodney Stark at Baylor University would put it, we're actually going through the single greatest religious renewal the world has ever seen. Uh, but the key here is that what all of these different scholars are noticing in their own way, in their own bent, in their own degree of you know, uh, strength or certitude is that this return of religion that's going on all over the world, because of this extraordinary religious renewal, the world's political order is changing. So th these aren't just personal private sentiments that people are just having new religious experiences of. No, this is, this is changing the balance of power. This is, this is something that's enacting a kind of paradigm shift we haven't seen probably in 300 years. In other words, we're increasingly shifting away from the world order that began in Europe with the Enlightenment in the 18th century that was founded on the fundamental tenets of scientific rationalism as a one-size-fits-all vision of reality for everyone uh, that became universalized through colonization and industrialization and globalization uh, and, and, and westernization. And what we're seeing here now is more and more populations rejecting that modern world and embracing what's commonly called a more post-modern or post-secular world that's ultimately working itself out with populations going back, going back to nation, culture, custom, tradition, most particularly religious traditions, to quite literally, ironically, pre-modern beliefs and practices, while at the same time maintaining modern technology. So this is something akin to what Guillaume Fay argued, or what he called archaeofuturism. Some have called it techno-primitivism. But it's the notion that the antithesis between science and religion and church and state, you know, technology and tradition, that's at the heart of the modern age, that antithesis has uh, collapsed. And now the two are joining forces, like we're seeing with the rise of neo-Orthodox Russia or neo-Confucian China, Shinto Japan, Hindu nationalist India with the BJP party there, the neo-Ottoman vision of Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, of course, we saw it in 1979 with uh, the rise of theocratic Iran. Now we've got the theocratic Afghanistan. Now uh, we've got neo-traditionalism absolutely on fire all throughout the African continent and on and on and on and on. And I think it's taken Western powers 
by surprise. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with the dolts in DC or the bullies in Brussels or the demons in Davos, my, my comic book names for them. But Western elites just don't really know what to do with this new, far more traditionalist conservative world. Or that's how I use the term conservatives ultimately is a traditionalist. That's what that's what unites a Texas conservative with a uh, with a Hindu conservative in uh, in uh, you know in uh, India because it's they don't know what to do with this world order because it doesn't respond to the political and economic manipulative pressures that the West has learned to rely on over the last several decades and to sort of close the loop here to make things even worse for them the same dynamics are manifesting themselves. Uh, in the West, um, but obviously from a different vantage point, because we were really the center, the epicenter of this industrialism, of this globalism, of this enlightenment sort of, you know, ideology that has morphed into a very bizarre wokeness. But we're seeing comparable nationalist, populist, traditionalist trends on both sides of the Atlantic with the Brexit and Trump earthquakes happening literally within days of each other, what, 90, 90 days or so, just a few months of each other. Uh, more than that. But, you know, uh, Trump, Trump actually campaigned back in 2016. There was a time in the midsummer when he said, call me Mr. Brexit. Yeah. I mean, he was a huge supporter of Brexit, a huge supporter of dismantling the liberal world order and the globalist institutions that make up that order. So while there's all kinds of hiccups and there's all kinds of oppressions and all kinds of roadblocks and frustrations and setbacks, there's there's really nothing the dolts in DC or the bullies in Brussels can do to stop this tectonic shift that's happening underneath their feet. No political paralysis in, in the palace of Westminster uh, can stop it because, again, it's a foundational paradigm shift from secular to post-secular, from modern to post-modern. And so secular modernist sentiments and structures are indeed uh, withering away. Um. <clears throat> You talk about kind of religion, spirituality, and certainly um, it's strange because we have this search for meaning in an age of chaos where there is no order, no right and wrong, no truth. And and people are uh, looking at spirituality. Certainly, uh, I have seen it here in the UK. People, once again, opening their Bibles, trying to understand what, what it is all about. So you have that rise of of inquisitiveness, of curiosity, and at the same time, certainly from a Christian point of view, you've got a, a very weak church that seems to have bought into that lie, the progressive lie. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and how does that work out in the U.S.? Oh, yeah, we're seeing the same, in, in terms of the mainline churches, we're seeing, we're seeing very much the same thing. I mean, what happened, uh, uh, of course, is in the modern experiment, the church got privatized. I mean, even in the UK, in many respects, even though you've, you have a national church there um, and we get to see it and we're, we're actually enamored by it whenever there's a coronation or a royal wedding or a funeral, uh, uh, a um, monarchical funeral, whatever. It, it, you, you can have the Church of England any day, Steve. Please take it. <laughs> right. I went, I went to school with some of the clergy in, in, in Durham and I was shocked by some of their, uh, some of the interaction I had with them. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And we've, and again, we're facing it here to the extent that the Episcopal Church manifests our, our, our wing of the Anglican Church or the United Methodist Church, the mainline uh, denominations have, have basically gone the way of modernity, and it's because they got privatized. And we have to just remember that um, 
you know, if you just compare the way, uh, like we were just talking about the beauties of Durham, medieval cities, where the church was in the urban planning of a medieval city. Of course, it was right at the very center. Yeah, I mean, you got a map of the Christian imagine, a, a Christian cosmos in every medieval city here in the states, the New England Commonwealth. Uh, drew from similar frames of reference the church steeple, the highest uh, building in the, in the Commonwealth there, with a with a town green, an Edenic green in its front, and the like. You look at modern urban planning today. Where's the church? You know, if there it's, if it's even there, it's been it's been pushed into the place of consumerism. You know, it's right next to pizzerias and dry cleaners, and it's and and what's happened as a result is the truth has been privatized because public life and private life operate by very different dynamics. Uh, public deals with the obligatory, whereas private is more optional, right? Public is objective. Private is subjective. Public applies to all. Private applies to only some. So when you privatize the church, what you do is you, you, you basically wither, um, you hollow out its truth and its moral claims because truth is public. It's not private. Truth is objective. It's not subjective. Tr truth applies to all by definition, not to only some. And so when you're you're pushed into the um, social equivalent, you know, of a of a Weight Watchers program or or you know the the YMCA or 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 like a pizzeria, whatever. If, if you're pushed into that equivalent, you can no more proclaim truth than they can. That's that's what ho that's what got hollowed out of the gospel. So the gospel no longer weighs on us like it would have, say, just in the 18th century. So I think that's what. So the clergy, I mean, they're more interested in all these gimmicks and church marketing programs and the like. I'm I'm broad brushing, but you know you know where I'm coming now. In the states, uh, we do uh, since the church and state of uh, are are so separated here in one sense right um the church the church can be actually pretty vibrant here in at local levels and so um many leftists think we live in uh a default theocracy in all the red states or even more specifically sort of the red counties um where the church exercises very conservative church exercises so much inordinate influence and the like but there is there are very very um heavy barriers uh placed on that uh where it's not allowed to rise to more national uh levels um they they do everything they can to quell that but it does seem to be uh for for all kinds of reasons particularly demographic reasons it does seem to be rising in a way uh that they they just can't clamp down on anymore and uh, Christian faith sales seems to be something that seemed positive, certainly in generally in politics. I mean, when you look at the front bench of in Parliament of any MP, uh, the last thing they would ever want to say is they'd go to a church or they may be a Christian. Uh, that's just not on the radar. In the US, it still seems that that is part of kind of the identity and even Joe Biden claims he's a Christian, and I'll right. let him take that up with God personally. But um, <laughs> how does that? Because you still seem to have that as a central tenant, as as an anchor, certainly in the political sphere. Yeah, it's it's right, exactly. It's still very very strong here. It's it's um, right. I mean, it's I guess we would be more akin to the to the Irish side of the UK, where we're just just religion is just a stronger part. 
in the United States. Yeah, it's it's no coincidence that secularization thesis was actually formulated in Europe because they were that's what they were seeing. They were seeing this these radical secularizing forces as liberalism and the liberal project began to take over. Uh, in Europe, and yeah, it just it 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 took over here in the states to a certain extent, uh, particularly among our elite. But that yeah, never really made it into the heartland. We, for for whatever reason, we just were able to keep. I guess maybe it's just the frontier sort of culture that we have here. But in our rural and um, ex-urban areas, uh, Christianity's just been able to flourish. I think largely also because of the demographic. Uh, revolution that's happening today, where liberalism more or less destroyed the family. <laughs> they they stopped having kids. Uh, and so with all these alternative lifestyles or just with, uh, you know, uh, very uh, secularized conceptions of the family, woke liberals, while busying themselves with trying to take over every cultural institution in the nation and being very successful in doing so, they forgot to procreate. So for whatever reason, they omitted replacing themselves from the cultural takeover plan. So we have a number of studies. Uh, Ed Dutton actually uh, has an excellent study. He's in the UK, uh, a Durham fellow as well, on the extraordinary fertility differences between atheists and religionists and liberals and conservatives and in all kinds of demographic studies all over the world, but particularly in North America and Europe. Uh, we're seeing a very clear and direct relationship between, for lack of a better term, you know, how right wing you are, how particularly how religiously conservative you are and how many children uh, you have. And the and the uh, the the demographic discrepancy is extraordinary. And that uh, seems with the United States and with its concentrated population, that's that's having some pretty profound effects. So, yeah, it'd be very hard to uh, to win an election here um, nationally uh, and be hostile, overtly hostile to faith uh, in in your expressions. You like like you say, I think Joe Biden is incredibly hostile to faith. Just ask any Christian baker, for example. Uh, but he will never admit to that. He'll always try to say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm a good church going Catholic," and blah blah blah. And, um, they, they, Obama did the same thing. Clinton, you know, scenes of him singing in, the, in his church choir. You just, there's no way around it. You have to, you have to do it. So if anything, Trump, Trump may have been probably the, the, the least overtly Christian yeah. fellow we had, but I mean, his they were, it was so woven into his policies that it just, it didn't matter. Oh, absolutely. Can I add you, obviously the message you bring a, a hopeful message, and I've seen you on numerous, I think I saw you on Seb Gorka the other day. Um, the only person kind of I come across with that kind of more positive outlook uh, possibly is is Steve Bannon. Um, mm. But yours, I mean, do you, are you told, come on, Steve, it's, it's, it's really, look, we've got this against, we've got that against us. Come on, it's, um, you're living in a fairy world. How do you kind of cope with that pushback that, just fit into the um this is a fight and it's a dark fight and it, we may win in the end how do you kind of cope against that that tries to tone that positivity down yeah yeah they i've i've been accused of uh pushing copium uh, copium <laughs> uh on, on oh no absolutely and again well um the, the irony to it all is when i first came across post-secular 
scholarship, I didn't believe it. I thought it was applicable to the Middle East, uh, Africa, sub particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, maybe I noticed Russia uh, being in the Orthodox tradition. I noticed Russia was doing quite well. But outside of that, I mean, I came across this during the Obama era, right after the Obama era started in 2009. And I just, I didn't buy it. I thought the West was shot. The West was done. So I, I share, ironically, uh, I, I have shared in that kind of uh, pessimism. But the more I studied, the more I was confronted with uh, the data. And, and the more I'm seeing the political outworkings happening, that data just is, is playing itself out. It's just getting confirmed. And I think, too, one of the ways of thinking about the current climate we're in, particularly spiritual climate, analytically helpful way of seeing it, it is through the prism of post-secularism, sort of a counter-reading of it. We, we have to recognize how frustrated and disconcerted our secular left is. Remember, Secular progressivism lived by the notion that religion was on its way out. Conservatism was on its way out. Traditionalism was on its way out. It was an evolutionary throwback that had no relevance to us today. And so you have the likes of like a Sam Harris, who's repeatedly and openly expressed his utter dismay as to the stubbornness of particularly American Christianity, but also Islam not just its persistence, but its actual growth and flourishing. And so to these people who've admittedly captured all the cultural levers of power, to these people, we're not supposed to be around, Peter. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, 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 so a lot of the persecution that we're facing here, political, cultural, economic, the, the, the debanking, uh, the latest trend of debanking that Nigel Farage has had to yeah. deal with, these persecutions are happening precisely because we're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to persist. So, so I see a lot of the, um, the obstacles and the frustrations that we face as an ironic confirmation that the joke's on them. Mm. We are winning. We're not going away. They can, they, can, they can clamp down as hard as they want on us. We've got all the demographic backwinds behind us blowing uh, in our direction uh what one of the uh, fascinating statistics is that uh in just uh three decades they predict there will be uh one liberal woman here in the united states for every so-called uh, for every four far-right women and wow. it's just it's just because when all is said and done Right-wingers are having families, mm -hmm. and in many ways bigger than ever, be because you take right. in consideration child mortality rates having imploded. So we're having more kids than ever, and those we have the data on whether or not those kids retain that conservatism into adulthood. And the answer is yes, because the more conservative, the more you tend to rely on parallel structures like you know Bible colleges or homeschooling or what have you. And the United States and Britain are number one and number two in terms of homeschooling uh, populations. Interestingly enough, Russia is number three, which is also fascinating. But uh, so what we're seeing is we're seeing 70%, 80% retention rates among young people. We've studied it particularly with the Amish, the Amish population. Um, and the Amish retention rates have actually been going up over the last 30 years. Eric Kaufman, who's a Canadian expat at University of London has done a lot of writing on this. And um, 
back in the 70s and 80s, if I recall, they had about a 70% retention level. About 30% would, of their kids would go to, through Rumspringa, this, uh, you know, kind of, you, you, get to, you get to flirt a little bit with the outside world. About 30% of them said, no, I like this. I'm going to stay in the outside world. And they basically become Mennonite. So they stay close to their families, but they have uh, more freedom with modern technology and so forth. Those numbers have hit upwards of 80 or 90% retention of late. So it's the more woke and crazy our society gets, ironically, the more traditionalists hang on to their kids. So it's, uh, there's just no way around it. They're, 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 they're disappearing. We're growing and there's nothing they can do to stop that. And so uh, as long as you, those dynamics are in place, Kaufman says by 2030, the United States culture war should tip dramatically in favor of the right permanently, or at least for the foreseeable future. We're estimated to have upwards of 300 million Mormons in our in our country just by the end of the century, 300 million Amish by the end of next century. So we're basically evangelicals, Mormons, Amish. I know there's a joke in there somewhere. I haven't quite figured it out yet. It can't, it can't be walking into a bar. Mormons don't drink, but uh, three guys walking into a bar. But you know, um, uh, and, but Europe is exa- it's the same thing. Now it's it's slower because you, you don't have the density of the population and and the Bible Belt uh, per se. But you you look at what Viktor Orban's doing uh, in Hungary. You look well, at the <clears throat> Can I ask, because you've written, um, and one of the things that I've enjoyed about what you put out is that you cover what's happening in Europe. And um, I wouldn't want to uh, criticize the wonderful U.S. commentators and maybe not looking at Europe. Uh, we certainly in Europe look to the U.S. for kind yeah, of Yeah, they're terrible. They're no, like, you, could, you could criticize. They're ter- they completely <laughs> ignore you. And it makes me upset cause, like, because uh, at least Eastern Europe, particularly, they're ahead of us. You know, yeah. I'd rather, we're, we're all honoring Victor Orban. We were talking about Victor Orban six years ago before anybody knew his name around here. So, yes, no, go ahead. Beat him up all you want, Peter. <laughs> well, he, he's an absolute rock. But it's not, I mean, two of the uh, two podcasts you put out recently, France's right-wing party surge and first Poulsen's riots. In other words, WEF, Dutch government collapses, and that's going to be phenomenal to watch that with the God. new farming party. But all across, I mean, Sweden, Finland, Hungary, Italy, uh, yes. Austria, Germany, it's it's happening all over. And how, I guess, as an American commentator, do you view what's happening? Because I think a lot of us maybe in Europe had thought, you know, we're post-Christian in Europe, and conservatism is very much out of fashion and this liberal way of this, the EU just knitting everyone together, re- re- uh, throwing off the nation state. And suddenly you've got a pushback on nearly every single country across Europe. How, how do you see that from the States? Absolutely. Yeah. I think again, well, being getting my doctorate uh, in the UK helped no question for to kind of broaden my, my horizons to what was going on in the world. But also when I encountered the post-secular studies, a lot of it was on Europe and the trends that were happening, particularly starting in Eastern Europe, going into Central Europe, talking a lot about Hungary and Poland. We were just seeing the rise of the Law and Justice Party in Poland back around that time. And uh, I, I, I really thought, and again, you have to remember, this was during our Obama era. I really saw the so-called far right 
they're not foreign. They're just, you know, the, the apostles of common sense. I think you would, you would call it, but, but I was noticing that we were already seeing the 300% surge in mm. so-called far right parties, these nationalist populist parties. And I really thought, wow, something's going to happen in Europe before we know it. Um, uh, and then again, this is before, before Brexit sentiments come in, came in the, I, the Cornell sociologists, um, Mabel Berezine has written about what she calls post-security politics. And it's very interesting because she argues that the nation state historically promised to provide three things, secure borders, a stable economy, and a space for the celebration and perpetuation of a, of a population's customs, traditions, and religion. And what Berezine argued is that, of course, over the last three, four decades, we've seen all those sec securities just erode as a result of globalization. So border security eroding as a result of mass unfettered immigration, uh, economic uh, security eroding through uh, what's called a global division of labor, where manufacturing and industrial factory jobs are shipped out uh, to third world nations, while capital and finance are relocated in urban centers leaving rural populations highly disenfranchised. So that's where you got the yellow vest uprising uh, in France, where there were no jobs where rural folk were living. They had to, they had to commute to the big cities uh, to, uh, to work, but they couldn't, they couldn't work there because the gentrification of those cities through finance had, uh, had jacked up the real estate prices. So there was no work where they lived and they couldn't live where there was work. And then they're, they're commuting an hour and a half each way. Um, and then Macron slaps a fuel tax on them to pay for some green initiative. And that just blew up uh, into the yellow vest uprising. So we saw that kind of post-security politics there. And then the cultural security has eroded through, uh, you know, uh, progressive political correctness, redefining our traditions as racist and bigoted and all kinds of phobic. At the same time, we're seeing this mass uh, influx of uh, migrants coming in with a different culture, different language, and so forth. So, so it's it it, it goes right back to the uh, border security. So this it's a it's a closed loop, as it were, self enforcing loop. Uh, and so, post security politics was manifesting itself very clearly in the rise of bootleg parties. That's a neat phrase. Again, I think it goes back to Eric Kaufman, where the center right, center left. When their political paralysis, they refuse to deal with any of those issues, uh, any border security, any economic security, any cultural security. And so you ended up seeing the rise of these so-called, we call them third parties here uh, in the parliamentary system. And they started to win. Uh, Nigel being one of the most uh, extraordinary uh, examples of that. I mean, back in 2019, one in three Brits voted for a party for their European Parliament elections before uh, Brexit was finally uh, instituted. And even then, you know, we know we got the issues, but it, but they voted for the Brexit party and it was only what, six weeks old, five or six weeks old. The Tories collapsed. It was, yeah. it was absolutely astonishing. And the Tories only had their best election ever months later with Nigel basically, you know, bowing out and giving his blessing that if you want Brexit, put Boris back in. And so you're seeing these, if you've got border security, economic, I'm sorry, yeah, border security, economic security, and cultural security as the, the new main issues of European populations, then you inevitably see nationalism, populism, and traditionalism emerging 
as the political forces uh, that are changing uh, politics in the continent. Now, again, it's it, you, bullies in Brussels are doing everything they can to stop it. Uh, you'll hear them talk that way, as you as you well know, and uh, you, you just hear them say, "Well, we have we have instruments that we can use to force compliance and things like that." But it's increasingly it's just not working. Finland, you mentioned the Sweden Democrats, the rise of the AFD in Germany. That was a. Uh, they're doing everything they can to, to, to try to prevent the AFD from running in their next national election because it looks like they're right at this point. They're going to come in second only to uh, Angela, well, formerly Angela Merkel's uh, Christian Democrats. So uh, the Vox Party in Spain, keep an eye on that next week. They have their, their socialist government collapsed and they're going to probably boot out Sanchez and they're going to probably get into a coalition government with the Podemos Party, the center-right party. So you have something... Very much like what we're having in Finland, in Sweden, in Greece, where the left just collapsed and and on and on and on. I think France is next. I think uh, National Rally is poised to to win a, a uh, in a in a very impressive uh, national election. Um, and then if they if they uh, begin to coalition with the center right Republicans and a couple of the others, you know, Eric Zemmour's party and so forth. I mean, now suddenly France is going to be a the, the France that was supposed to be the globalist space par excellence for 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 Europe's new emperor, Emmanuel Macron. Now they're going to have a, a, a government more on par with Viktor Orban. It's incredible. It is. And we could have the AFD, you're right, second in Germany. You could have the Freedom Party first in Austria next year. And Le Pen leading France. I mean, that would just be the most beautiful scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and it's happening. That's the thing. These, What we try to do every day on my channel and what you're doing is we're, we're tapping into the trends that are moving in this direction. So a lot of people are late to the party. A lot of people are like, what's going on in Europe? This is amazing stuff. Well, it's it, Nigel Farage first came on the scene in the 1990s. This is yep. stuff that's been happening. I mean, remember uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the European Union sanctioned Austria when the when the Freedom Party first got a certain amount of the of the vote. And if I recall, that was back in the 1990s as well, well before the 2008 uh, you know global financial crisis. These are seeds that have been ha that have been germinating for a while, and they're just they've already been sown. And now we're just gonna we're gonna witness how big the harvest is. Um, can I, uh, uh, another part of the jigsaw, and we'll, we'll finish up on this area, but is the economic side. And one of your um, phrases uh, from uh, your website is, now is the time to build a parallel economy, mm -hmm. to live out our God-given freedoms and leave a legacy of faith, family, and freedom for our children and grandchildren. And that idea of a parallel economy intrigues me, especially when you see corporations bound to wokeness and yeah. being being severely damaged because of it happily um tell us more about that parallel economy because we've talked about kind of the spiritual and the political side but you also need to have a juggernaut an economic juggernaut taking that on and people need an alternative and this is what a lot of the conversation has been about a parallel economy Absolutely. And uh, I and again, it's a term or it's a concept that's uh, also European as well. I mean, just in terms of the way it was formalized and written about thinking particularly Václav Havel, Václav Benda in the uh, Soviet dominated uh, Czechoslovakia in the 
70s and 80s. They wrote a lot about what they called a parallel polis, and they actually pointed to uh, churches and the concept of the churches in New Jerusalem as this notion of being able to create an alternative society where citizens can live out truth in the midst of a society um, dominated by lies, like in the, the Soviet period. And, uh, and if, the more we live out truth, the more we reveal those lies to be what they actually are fabrications and the like. So obviously Václav Havel was a, a brilliant fellow, ended up becoming uh, president of Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic. And um, I and the Berlin Wall fell within just a decade or so of those writings. So we're taking a lot of inspiration from that as we live in a kind of, well, what scholars actually call a, a refutalization. When, it, when it's a, here, I've heard the term refutalization for the United States and I've heard the term neo-medievalism when applied to Europe because of the EU functioning very similarly to, say, the Holy Roman Emperor or something, or the, the Roman Catholic Church working in that way, um, uh, having sort of ultimate control over uh, over districts and, and emerging sovereign nations and the like. But refutalization refers, it's a very helpful model to see what's going on today because it refers to the ways in which the structure of society is increasingly reflecting uh, the, this, this kind of caste system. So, for example, today, like, say, in the, the medieval period, you have an astonishing concentration of wealth and power in the hands of very, very few. So five years ago, 400 billionaires owned half the world's assets. Today, that number's dropped to 100. Now, thank God, one of them is on our side. <laughs> Elon Musk is, on, is and that, and he's just he's been one of the biggest boosts to this parallel economy that's trying to uh, provide a different kind of space from this neo uh, uh, this uh, neo feudalism or refeudalization. But it's not just the billionaires and the bureaucrats that are that are teaming up. There's also a new kind of radicalized fundamentalism. Uh, involving all things woke, the environment, gender, and race. And again, it's, that's where bureaucrats and billionaires, you can really see them teaming up, where you have corporations now use, uh, enforcing um, ESG and, and DEI, and this is where the demons in Davos come in. Uh, they're enforcing stuff that none of us would ever vote for, right, from our politicians. But because bureaucrats and billionaires are are hooking up here with this bizarre kind of ideological fundamentalism where there's no room for dissent whatsoever, dissenters are heretics, you know, And in, but instead of a clerical class, now it's a clerisy class, a class of pseudo-intellectuals from the universities, the professional class, the credential class that are imposing an ideological inquisition on the whole of uh, the population. But again, the, the good news is w what we're seeing is something akin to uh, a Protestant revolt uh, that we saw coming out of that uh, feudalized uh, period. And the populist uh, Protestant revolt in many ways was a populist uh, revolt um, where where the people ha had the right uh, to to the scriptures and so on and so forth and, and to pray and to have a direct relationship to God. And so what we're seeing, I think, is, is we're seeing a, a new kind of Protestant revolt uh, in the form of a parallel economy where more and more people are uh, with money and investment opportunities and seeing, um, seeing extraordinary business opportunities are starting to pump 
lots and lots of money into an economy that is that is uh, the only requirement of being a part of it is you must disown all things woke. <laughs> Anything woke is not allowed. Anything else, you're come on in. It's, you're going to love it. So we're we're seeing the Sound of Freedom movie. Uh, it's number one at the box office. It's about to hit a hundred million dollars in revenue this is all as uh as the uh, disney's new uh, indiana jones has just bombed and it's, uh, as a matter of fact disney i just came across a stat the other day disney has lost nearly one billion dollars in its last eight releases nobody's going oh, wow. to see it anymore so they're going to alternative movies um they're going to alternative stores they're boycotting uh, well, I would say they're going to alternative beer, but I don't think Bud Light is beer, quite frankly. I, I, am partial to British beer myself, but, uh, so, we, uh, but you see Bud Light's sales are in the tank target, you know, they had their, their pride section for children in their clothing store, uh, target is a department store here in the States. They're falling apart because of a boy actually boycott target was a song and it hit number one on iTunes. Mm. Uh, it's just, it's just amazing stuff going on. And that's happening at the same time, even within the democratic party, there are constituencies like, like Muslims um, who are pushing back against uh, uh, the LGBT agenda. So in Hamtramck, Michigan, uh, which is a, a Detroit uh, district, uh, it votes 70% Democrat, but they're, they have the first um, all-Muslim uh, city council there. They, they were the first city council to vote unanimously to officially ban the rainbow LGBT pride flag from flying on any and all uh, city uh, public uh, property. Uh, and these were all Democrats. So, so, and, and Democrats just, or, and the woke just don't know what to do with this because they're seeing, they're seeing all of their cultural products basically going bankrupt. And now they're even seeing what was up until now very loyal con voting constituents rebelling against them as well. It does really look like it's starting to implode. And this parallel economy may indeed be the mainstream economy within the next five to 10 years. Dr. Steve Turley, I appreciate you coming on and sharing the, that optimism and upbeat message, which I think is often missing in commentary. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. It's been my honor. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.